It is great to see you here. If you picked up a copy of the book survey, uh, that's back here where um, where Roger is. Does anybody that didn't pick one up? I know Roger would be glad to get you one. Anybody need a copy of the uh, book survey? All right, excellent. Great to see you here. I've asked uh, Philip, if he wouldn't mind, to lead us in an opening prayer, and uh, we will get started with our Bible class here in just one moment. So wait on a few more folks to come on in, and then Philip, you can lead us in prayer. Is that all right? Thank you, Philip. Appreciate that very much. All right. We're going to be looking at the book of 3 John this morning. And if you, again, got a copy of the book survey, this is the way we're going to uh, proceed and taking a look at it. You remember that, uh, again, for the last uh, six months or so, and we're almost to the end, we've been studying about living by the book and uh, the process of making sense of what we see in Scripture. And um, this second quarter here that we've been going through is by uh, uh, looking at different types of studies. Uh, we've looked at character studies, we've looked at word studies, we've looked at uh, chapter studies, all these different uh, means for uh, looking in and getting the most out of our Bible study and our Bible reading, and that's uh, really the way we've been doing it. And we talked about book surveys last week, and we looked at 2 John. This week we're looking at uh, 3 John uh, and doing a book survey of that. As with the most important thing, the thing that we're supposed to do again and again and again, what is that thing when we get to a new Bible text or a text that we want to study? What's the most important aspect? You got to read it, and you got to read it, and you got to let it soak in your mind. You got to let it uh, meditate on it. You got to think about it. Uh, reading with a pen and paper in hand to where you can look and see and say, uh, this stands out to me. I would like to know more about this. I have a big question mark about this. How does this fit in with whatever else he's saying? And so again, as a Bible detective, we uh, look at it and we say, uh, what is God communicating uh, through the Holy Spirit, through the writer, uh, to, for the edification of the church or for the rebuke of the church or whatever it is that, uh, that he's writing about? We're going to read just for a moment uh, 3 John, and then we'll come back and make some observations about the text and, uh, and look at it a little bit more deeply. The elder to the beloved Gaius, who I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified the truth that's in you just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on, a, on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers in the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. 
Therefore, if I come, I will call to his to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish, uh, wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what's evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil is not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and the truth itself. And we bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I don't wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. A couple of preliminary observations about Third John. Number one, it seems to be written by John the Apostle. It is affirmed in the tradition of the early church and their attribution of the epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, but it also bears a remarkable similarity just in language and construction and sentences and things like that and Greek construction to the gospel account of John. And so, again, with the, uh, the early church tradition, with understanding um, uh, the elder and looking at uh, the way that this is put together in the, the tradition, the history, it, uh, it is written by John the Apostle. Who is it written to? Uh, the beloved Gaius. It might be Gaius is an individual. It might be a pseudonym. Uh, the name simply means to rejoice in Latin. He's referred to four times in this epistle as the beloved. Note these uh, there in verse 1, to the beloved Gaius. Verse 2, beloved. Verse 5, beloved. Verse 11, beloved. Writing again and again and again to this individual, or he could just be using Gaius as a, uh, a rejoicer, um, talking about the truth as, uh, as you know, the church altogether. You are all joyful. You're all rejoicing. Um, I'm going to write this epistle to you all and uh, just use the blanket term Gaius for, uh, for all of you. What it seems to be more evidence of is an individual because he talks about the character of this person um, there in verses 3 through uh, three through 7. Okay, and so uh, again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on either way, but it seems to be more evidence of an individual. If you had to assign a main theme to the book just from this reading or just from you reading uh, this past week, what would you say is a major theme of the book of Third John? Walk in the truth, teach the truth. Okay, good. What else? What else stands out to you about this epistle? Hospitality, Hospitality showing kindness to strangers. All right, what else? Or kindness to the church, and uh, especially Second John dealt with kindness to strangers and kindness to those who come in from the outside. What else? The influence of individuals. What individuals does John address here in 3 John, or what, who does he refer to uh, in, this, in this epistle? He refers to diatrophies there beginning verse 9. Who else? Demetrius down in verse uh, 12. Who else? Who's the other individual, if we're going to call him an individual, and that kind of ought to give you a clue, does he talk about their character, their conduct, and the way that they behave? It's Gaius also. He spends the first, well, almost half of the book talking about the character and the conduct of, of Gaius. Uh, beginning of verse 3, I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that's in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who borne witness of love before the church. And so here's 
John complimenting Gaius on his character, talking about Demetrius and his character, and then going back and talking about uh, Demetrius and his character. And so you've got the main theme of the book being walking in truth and being uh, um, what's, uh, what's, uh, what is the truth or how does a person walk in the truth? How do they behave, people that walk in the truth? Um, but as you unfold this epistle, you're going to see some good examples and some really bad examples of what it's like to walk in the truth. Um, what should we do without uh, reading any further? Should we follow the good examples or the bad examples? It's like a question that we ask our kids sometimes in Bible classes. Okay, or should we follow the good ones or the bad ones? And you say, well, you want to follow the good ones. And that's really the essence of what he's trying to get across here in, uh, in 3 John. Key verse of the book. One verse that stands out to me more than any other is particularly 3 John 11. And I've got in my Bible and uh, a lot of books, brackets around the key verses or the ones that seem to be the thesis statement. If I had to assign a hub of the wheel to the way that this book unfolds, what's the key verse? Look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what's evil, but what's good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Here's what you ought to do. Here's what you ought to stay away from. Living example, number one, imitate Gaius. Living example, number two, imitate Demetrius. Anti-living example, or um, what not to imitate, Diotrephes. So you've got a contrast of godly character, those who walk in the truth, versus ungodly character, which is those who don't walk in the truth. Again, here's Demetrius as, or uh, Diotrephes rather, as uh, as. Uh, example number one. Key words of the book. Again, as I read again, uh, time and time again, there are going to be words that stand out. One of them I've already given you is the word beloved. A word that occurs time and time again is going to be an important word. If you repeat something over and over to me trying to get my attention with it, you're going to use that word again and again and again until I say, oh, I think that that word's probably important. Um, <laughs> and so you, uh, you look for the repeated words. Word walk. Um, look at verse 3. I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that's in you just as you walk in the truth. Verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in the truth. Isn't that true as you get older? Isn't that true a lot of cases that as you see people that you have interacted with and maybe that you've helped grow along the way, particularly Christians, and you've helped them with their faith, and you've helped them in understanding the will of God, and later on, maybe you uh, don't cross paths for years, or maybe you don't come across them, but maybe on social media, and you see that this young man uh, that you had uh, placed a lot of encouragement to, now he's a preacher of the gospel, or he's a deacon somewhere, he's serving as an elder. As you get older, you tend to appreciate the things that really matter. And that's what John's saying here is, the people that I've invested my time, my life in, the ones that I have really pushed in a godly direction and encouraged in a godly direction, these are the ones that I'm so glad to hear these young people are, or these people are walking in truth. My children. Uh, I refer to my youth group that I used to uh, work with in San Marcos as my children. Brennan Hooper, who came and preached. Um, that always comes to my mind. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walking in truth. It's a wonderful thing to talk about fathers and sons or fathers and children in the faith. 
Um, Paul talking about Timothy as a true son in the faith. Don't you know that it gave Paul just a great deal of uh, joy uh, when he knew that uh, Timothy, even though he was suffering there in Ephesus, he still continued fighting and doing what was right, uh, even in the midst of difficulty and even in the midst of his own tears. You have no greater joy than hear your children walk in truth. Um, again, the key word walk. Look at the key word walk all the way through, uh, and you're going to find that it's a, it's a key word. Uh, in truth is another key word, and the word receive. Uh, look down at verse 8. Down at verse 8. Another key word. We therefore ought to receive such. Who is he referring to? Who are we receiving? Brothers. Okay. The brothers that are doing what? That are what? That are working, that are walking. Verse 5, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren, for strangers, who borne witness of your love for the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner of the word of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for, here's another key word, the truth. Okay, here's people that are faithfully going about carrying along the mission and the, the doctrine of Christ, who are working and are uh, continuing the progress of the gospel. And as we see those people coming and we see the people that uh, maybe in our day are missionaries afar off, maybe the ones that are doing difficult work in uh, hard circumstances, you know, people that will go up and, and devote their life to trying to spread the gospel up in places like Wisconsin or, or Michigan or places where this church is, uh, isn't very strong. Those are mission fields. Just as much as what we have here in Rosenberg, Texas and the surrounding communities is a mission field. But sometimes those mission fields can be even harder. And so when you've got people that are not trying to take advantage of people, they're not trying to get rich off the Gentiles and all those people, they're not trying to uh, peddle the word of God for, uh, for money or anything else, but they're faithfully doing. He says, you need to hold on to those people. You need to receive such because they're taking nothing of the Gentiles so that we can become fellow workers for the truth. All right, receive those. What's an opposite of that? Look at verse 9. So we ought to receive these people, but he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, I come, if I come, I will call to his mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So here's a person who's coming in from out, outside. Here's a person who's maybe doing one of those difficult works and it's not trying to get rich off the Gentiles. He comes and he finds a church wherever it is that Gaius is living. And what's happening? Here's a guy by the name of Diotrephes saying, well, we don't, we're not going to house a person like that. We don't know that much about him. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know. And you know what? Look at him. He's maybe not of the type of sort that we want to associate with. So we're going we're gonna to leave him alone. And if you touch him, if you try and receive him, that's it. You're done here at the church in Graver Road. You're done at the church. I'm going to put you out of here. I'm going to mark you as divisive, as a person that, you know, doesn't have the, the will of God at, at his heart. Well, what do we do as Christians? 
we're torn between an attitude of saying, well, I want to bear with somebody in love. I don't want to create problems and create a, a division. And so here's a person who's really set themselves up as judge, jury, and executioner. Here's a really a person that set him up as the door of the church, the door of the sheepfold. Well, what do you do with a person like that? You take him to third John. <laughs> you, <laughs> you take him to third John. You begin to look at what John, the Bible counsels for a person who really um, has got his finger on the pulse of every little aspect of the church. And they feel like it's their right and their responsibility to hold on to those things, to say, yes, these people are worthy of fellowship. No, these people are not worthy of fellowship. And really to divide, make the lines. And if you disagree with them, well, heaven help you, right? Because nowadays you've got a problem with them personally. Um, key words, receive. Here's Diotrephes who does not receive uh, the brethren. These that are traveling and it is that he doesn't receive uh, John and his message. He doesn't receive the authority of the apostles. Again, when you set yourself up so much so that you put yourself against the inspired word of God, that folks, that's not a good place to be in. Um, Something that we ought to take very, very seriously. So, general outline of the book. And this is just my own outline. You can come up with your own where you feel like the natural breaks are in the text. But part of the process of doing a book survey is coming up with an outline that seems to be viable for, uh, for the entirety of the book. Number one, uh, introduction, verses one and two. Here's the greeting. Here's uh, uh, who it's written to. Here's writing it. The elder going to Gaius. He makes a commendation of Gaius, verses 3 through 8. He makes a condemnation of Diotrephes, verses 9 and 10. What I believe is the overarching principle, verse 11, or the key verse, if you like, is verse 11. Uh, Beloved, don't imitate what's evil, but what's good. He who's good of, is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. And then a commendation of Demetrius, verse 12. And then the conclusion, verses 13 to 14. John saying... I wanted to write to you a whole lot more, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to put all those things off in hopes that I get to come and see you and be able to share these things with you personally. Our friends greet you by name, greet, uh, greet you, greet the friends by name. All right. What stands out to you about this book? Is there anything that you see that seems to be, um, when we begin to talk about application, things that we ought to do in what's good and things that we ought to avoid in what's evil or what's a bad example to follow. <laughs> Lift up our brother in Christ and keep on encouraging them to do good works. Absolutely right, Philip. Absolutely. Like who? Who did that here in Third John? John was doing it to Demetrius. John was doing it also to Gaius. And so from the example of John, here I'm going to offer a commendation on this brother who's doing an excellent work in this circumstance. Thank you. Thank you. And pointing out specifically what it is that you have done. Which makes more of a difference. Or which means more to you in your aspect. Somebody says, Ken, I really appreciate you. He can say thanks. But, Ken, I really appreciate you for the fact that you're always smiling, the fact that you're always willing to help, the fact that 
you really helped me out in a difficult situation when this was going on. Which is going to mean more. One of them is going to mean a lot. The other one's going to mean more because here are specific things that you have done that have made a difference not only in my life, but in the life of Christians everywhere and in the life of non-Christians. Thank you for that. Again, making specific commendations for people, telling them specifically why it is that you're grateful for them and what it is that they've done in your life and in the life of the church. And it make a big difference in the way that you feel and the way that you operate and the way that you react then that aren't those words the type of words that we want to help us to keep going in our Christian life so that you can help out somebody enough to where you say, you know what, I really appreciate the fact that you're always a great example for our young people. I really appreciate the way that you sit and take time for the youth, or I really appreciate the way that you pay attention to the older folks, you know, some of the widows, widowers, uh, the people that, uh, that may, you know, uh, really need a, a loving hand or a hug of encouragement. Those are excellent things. And those are things, hey, worthy of imitation. Verse 11, don't imitate what's evil, imitate what's good. Sometimes, folks, what's going to help you most when you get to a book like this, where it contrasts all these good things versus all of these evil things, make a list of every good thing that's listed about Gaius and Demetrius. Make a list of every bad thing that's listed about Diotrephes. These are specific things that I can imitate. What are they? Beginning verse 3, or actually verse 2, if you like. What's the first thing worthy of imitation of Gaius? It's right there in the text, folks, verse 2. What's that? Sorry, I meant one more time. Prosperity. Prosperity of what? Prosperity of the soul. That's a big question mark for me. And thinking, how do I prosper my soul? How does your soul prosper? We're not necessarily talking about uh, eating riches, right? We're not talking about uh, consuming physical money. What are we talking about? Is there any passage in the New Testament or in the Bible as a whole that can help me understand this, you think? What does it mean to have a prospering soul? That might be a good Bible study for us to do. You're growing. You're growing in your relationship to the Father. Okay, absolutely right. And with the brethren. Um 1 John chapter 1 talks about, I've written to you these things that your joy may be full, that you can rejoice with us because uh, we've seen Christ and we revealed him to you and now uh, you can have fellowship with us and we can have fellowship with you and there's a growing uh, uh, appreciation for the knowledge that we have in Christ. Peter would say, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. Um, Jesus would say, uh, Lay up for yourselves not treasures here on the earth, but treasures in heaven. Whatever's here, right? Uh, the laying up for treasures on the earth, where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. Instead, Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust can't touch those things, where thieves are not going to touch those things. So where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. 
Well, what does that tell me about that? It tells me I can lay up for myself treasures in heaven. Is that my soul prospering, you think? Is that my soul taking pride and value rather in what's really, really important? What's really going to last? A soul that is withering and shrinking and not growing the way that it ought to is a soul that um, we've neglected the hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds in the mouth of God. It may be that we're well fed on the outside, that we're well fed in the physical, and I see a lot of us that are, right? But at the same time, our soul could be withering, it could be a starving person, it could be wasting away from spiritual anorexia. Soul prospering means you're growing the way that you ought to. You're bearing fruit that comes from following after the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. You're um, a, more appreciative every single day of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. A prospering soul, is that something worthy of imitation? Nod your head like that, it's okay. It is. A prospering soul, what else? What else is worthy of imitation? Again, I'm reading through verse 3. I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that's in you, just as you walk in the truth. Okay, is there a difference between having the truth in us and walking in the truth? Why does he use those two phrases? Okay. I can be straight as an arrow, doctrinally speaking, but I can fail to let that change my actions. Is that true? James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. I can have a great knowledge of who God is and what God's called me to do, and I can uh, rightly divide the word of truth every time, but folks, if I fail to walk in that, if I fail to let that change my life, well, is that something worthy of imitation or not? It's not. Here's Gaius, though, who not only has the truth that's in him, uh, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. There's that aspect of it, but there's also a walking in truth. Here is my lifestyle day after day. It's going to confirm the fact that I am living out my beliefs. I am walking according to what I know is right. We can put all the knowledge that we can in us, biblically speaking. We can study the Bible till we're blue in the face. But folks, if we're not going to be willing to live out what we know is right, what good have we done? What good have we done? I'm going to leave out these doors after Sunday worship is over and go out and live, well, like the world. Have I really done any good? Is it really going to change me? Ken? Faithfulness. There's faith, but then there's also faithfulness. Exactly right. Very good. What else? What else is worthy of commendation? He's walking in the truth. He's letting the truth dwell in him. Worthy of a commendation, sir. Sharing the truth. How is that demonstrated here in the life of Gaius, Roger? 
Okay. He is trying to help both, and that's an excellent point to be made. From looking from the perspective of John, I'm interested that you continue doing what's right. I'm interested that those who are doing wrong are going to change and do what's right. There's an aspect of encouragement, but there's also an aspect of rebuke. Both of those things are in living faithfully from the perspective of John. If we're looking particularly at Gaius, what's a quality or characteristic that he's demonstrating here that John writes about there in verses 5 and 6? Witness of love for the church by showing what? Truth. You do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who are born witness for your love for your truth. If you send them on in a journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Here's a person who receives those, who is encouraging those, who is perhaps showing hospitality towards those that are doing what's right. Being open in receiving the brethren, being willing to encourage them in their task and being willing to help them along in their way. Uh, here's a man with a Christ-like reputation who's known for doing these things. He's faithful in his love and his service of the church. He's faithful in, in encouraging the gospel to be spread in the church. And what are we known for? What are we as individuals known for? Are we people that will encourage the missionaries and write letters of support and maybe send them a little bit extra money when we have it? Or uh, is it one of those things that we just kind of look at and say, well, that's, somebody will do it. Gaius is one that would do it. Gaius is one that would uh, receive those who need to be received and encourage those who need to be encouraged, and especially those who were walking upright just like he was in integrity and who were living out the truth, uh, walking in the truth. He's willing to give them a shot in the arm to help them along the way. And not only does he become a fellow worker, but John says, as those people come to you, he said, you receive them also so they can all, we can all be fellow workers together. There are qualities and characteristics that are worthy of imitation. Stan, did you have something? <laughs> he doesn't mention retirement. Hmm, interesting point. an understanding that God didn't always call the young to lead. In fact, you look at the term elders, you look at how old Moses was when God finally called him out of the wilderness of Midian to go and lead his people out of bondage. He was 80 years old. It wasn't when Moses was in his prime back in his 40s when he was ready to kill the Egyptians and uh, cast off the bondage. It was after Moses had gained the experience of maybe being a shepherd for those 40 years in the wilderness. Um, it may be that those of you that are retired from an earthly job have a better position and a better opportunity to really to receive people that need to be received and offer commendation uh, and to offer rebuke where a lot of other folks who are still working earthly jobs don't necessarily have those 
But again, Paul doesn't talk about retiring from service. He doesn't talk about uh, uh, Gaius or Demetrius retiring from their service. He just says, you're continuing to do what faithfully what it is that you know is right. Um, a lot of folks have used their retirement effectively for the service of the kingdom. And they've done so in ways that are everlasting, that uh, will make a difference into eternity. Because they said, you know what, I may be retired from my earthly job, but I'm not retired from the Lord's service. I'm going to use this time to his glory, and I'm going to find maybe a different aspect or a different way that I can encourage the church. Good point to be made. Um, what types of things can we look at that are not worthy of imitation? We're looking at verses 9 and 10 especially. Here's the uh, man, Diotrephes. What does he condemn in this man, or what does he uh, say, this is evil and you don't need to imitate? Or what can we infer that is evil and we don't need to imitate? He's a gossip. What, uh, what do you see there that in indicates he's a gossip? What evidence you got? He's prating against us with malicious words. Don't use the word prating very often. What does the word prating mean? What is it, Alan? To speak against. Here's somebody that's uh, willing to destroy somebody with their words. Doesn't matter how much good they're doing, what are they going to find? They're going to find the bad. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. He may be doing all his good. Yeah, but. I could just look at him and see he's a seedy individual. Well, prating against us with malicious words. Okay, he's a gossip. What else? He loves to have the, what's the word? Preeminence. He loves to set himself above everybody else. You have a question in the church. Who are you going to come to? Who's got the answers? Who's the one that you're going to uh, come and bring those questions? No, yeah, no gas that brother. Come on over here. I, I'll bet you I have the answer. Well, when you have somebody that sets themselves up like that, and you have somebody that is the end-all decision for everything that's done within the congregation, well, what do you have? You have a dictator. There's a reason why, in the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, you have a plurality of elders over a congregation. And in fact, the emergence of, uh, of, of the first denomination began with one elder exalting himself above all the rest of them. And then those elders of uh, this elder and this elder from this church over here and this elder from this church over here getting together and then exalting an elder over that. And then exalting an elder over that. Until the point where you've lost the biblical example and the autonomy of the local congregation sitting under the plurality of elders and you have something that's wholly unholy. Wholly different than the plan of, of what scripture says. Here's the atrophies sitting up in the church and saying, you know, if you have a problem, you need to come to me. If you have a difficulty, you need to come to me. You know, those people that came into our worship, we don't need to let them back in here. They're just, uh, they're, they're, they're not worthy of our fellowship. You know, John the Apostle, I know that he's maybe written to some of you, but you don't need to receive him. You know why? You know who John is? John was one of those disciples that fled whenever Jesus was uh, arrested there in the garden. Yeah, he came back and he followed from afar, but, you know, we don't need to listen to John. I would hate to stand against one of the inspired apostles 
and their words and be put against them, speaking against them with malicious words. It says something, however, about John and about his attitude in the fact that he spends some time talking about this man and saying, I want this man to make it right. I want this man, I'm going to come and I'm going to visit with him if it is that I'm going to come. Therefore, if I come, I will call to his mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. It's not just so that he can lay down the case, well, what's the desired result? The Diotrephes will lay down his pride and what? Repent. But he'll change. He'll change his mind. He'll change his attitude. He'll change his actions. And he'll change the way that he's been behaving because it's been detrimental to the church there. What else is he doing that's not worthy of imitation? He is deciding who is worthy of fellowship and who is unworthy of fellowship. And he's putting people out of the church, as Dale says. Exactly right. He doesn't receive the apostolic word. And in fact, he doesn't receive the brethren. Maybe those who are traveling that he's talked about Demetrius or, excuse me, Gaius uh, receiving. And he says he takes those people and he puts them out of the church. And if somebody's going to come and stand against him and say, wait a minute, I know these people. I know that they were a part of, you know, what Gaius did and send him on his way. Doesn't matter. You know what? You stand against me. I'm going to put you out of the church. You ever find such a toxic environment like that to where maybe a preacher has set himself up to say, you're going to come and rebuke me? I don't think so. I'm going to withdraw fellowship from you. It's happened. Sadly, it's happened. People become diatrophies because it is that they have some kind of power-hungry uh, a desire for control, and they're going to hold on to that control with nothing else to the point where you can't tell them anything. You can't talk to them about their character. You can't talk to them about their attitude. You can't talk to them about their teaching and the way that they're behaving, so much so that those people are going to hold on to that power and say, you know what, you stand against me. I'm going to put you out. You can't have any fellowship anymore. You know what? You try and fight that. What's going to happen? I'm going to destroy you with my words. I'm going to tell everybody what a low-down, miserable dog you are. And it is that congregations have been completely poisoned by that type of mindset and that type of difficulty. It's happened. And Third John is just as relevant today because, folks, pride is a temptation for all of us to where we feel like we have enough knowledge or we feel like we have enough uh, experience or we have enough expertise in the matters of spirituality and spiritual things that we can just say, well, you come to me for the answers. Don't go to your Bible. Don't go to your elders. Don't go to your preacher. You come to me. I know what I'm talking about. You know, old brother so-and-so over there, yeah, I know that he came forward last Sunday. I know he repented, but you know what? It wasn't genuine. Well, wait a minute. Now you're looking at somebody's heart, and you're maybe trying to make judgments based upon them and their penitence towards God. Folks, we can't do that because only Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. John chapter 2, 24 and 25. We know that only Jesus was the one who is able to look into and discern the thoughts and intents of an individual. That's Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 4. Again, we can't go in and try and judge people's motives. But that's exactly what pride does, is it puffs us up to the point where we feel like, yeah, I can make that decision. Yeah, I can make that determination. And next thing you know, you're judged during execution of the church. 
pride is so deceitful, and we've got to be careful of it. And we've got to work and watch out for it. Otherwise, I'm going to start looking down on somebody else and say, you know what, they're just unworthy of our Christian fellowship. Who was it that decided who has Christian fellowship? Who is it that decided who's worthy or unworthy of fellowship? It was Christ. Anybody else that tries to do that, not based upon what Christ said about it, is doing so presumptuously. And we've got to be very, very careful about that. As we conclude here, uh, take a look at the application specifically. Having a character like Gaius, I want to make sure and I want to look at myself, examine yourself, see if you're in the faith. Second uh, Corinthians 13, verse 5. I want to make sure that my soul is prospering. I'm growing in the right things. My bank account could be growing, but I could have a soul that's withering away and wasting away. I want to make sure that I'm taking care of what really matters, that soul that's going to go on for eternity. All my wealth, all my riches are one day not going to mean a thing to me. I've got to leave them here. I can't take them with me. But I can take away the riches that my soul lays up. I want to make sure that my Christ-like reputation is known among the brethren, not because I'm trying to build a reputation, but because I'm doing what's right, your reputation is going to take care of itself. Is that true? If I try and build my reputation myself, chances are sooner or later I'm going to mess it up. However, if I take care of my character and my conduct, I do what's right because it's right. I'm going to let the truth well in me. I'm going to walk in that truth. I'm going to be known as a person like Gaius, who is a person who you can count on, who is dependable, who is hospitable, who is trustworthy, who is uh, somebody that's going to receive those people that need to be received and encourage those who need to be encouraged. Uh, I am faithful in love and service to the church. I want to be a, a growing person like Gaius if I'm concerned that the gospel is spread. All those are qualities and characteristics we can take out of 3 John. However, on the opposite side of the coin, verse 11, don't imitate what's evil, but imitate what's good. He does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. What is a character like Demetri or Diotrephes, rather? Well, I might be Diotrephes if I've got to have my way all the time. <laughs> I've got to be the one that has the final word about whatever goes on in the work and worship of the church. I've got and might have a character like Diotrephes if I refuse to accept scripture. I know that John said in his epistle this, but you know, I offer an alternative. Here's Diotrephes who's not going to accept what John wrote. I wonder what it would be that he would accept. If you're not going to accept a person who uh, was uh, endued with the Holy Spirit who uh, by inspiration was able to write and speak and do all those things that the apostles were able to do, what would you receive? You know, would he have Christ come into his midst and say, yeah, you're unworthy of fellowship? Um, because you set up your pride like that, uh, you refuse to accept scripture. <coughs> I might have a character like uh, Diotrephes if I speak disparagingly to the church. That doesn't happen today, does it, at all? You, know? <laughs> you get in the car on the way home, and all of a sudden you start blasting the song leader and the preacher and the elders and the deacons and uh, fellow members. He didn't say hello to me. She didn't say hello to me. They're just a, a, a ragtag bunch of, well, wait a minute. You ever think about the fact that we're talking about another man's wife when we talk bad about the church? And not just another man, but we're talking bad about Jesus' church.
Jesus' bride. When we get in and we just nitpick to the point where all we can see is the negative and the bad, and we just want to speak disparaging of everything that we disagree with, well, why did they pick the carpet that color? Why did they uh, do this? Why did they do that? And I would have done it like this and like that, like this. And we nitpick and we are critical to the point of there's nothing good about those group of people. What difference is there between us and Diotrephes? If we're going to speak disparaging of the church. I might have a character like Diotrephes if I consider others unworthy of fellowship. <laughs> when I speak evil about a fellow Christian brother or sister, you know what you're really doing? We're really doing? We're saying to that person or about that person, if I had my way and this person was not a Christian, I would see to it that they would never become a Christian. I would see to it that I would never allow them to enter the doors of the building if I had my way. Again, who has the right to say that? It's none of us. It's none of us. If you weren't a Christian, I had my way, you never would be. When I consider others unworthy of fellowship, when I speak evil of a brother, or I prayed against another with malicious words, what are you really saying? You're saying you're unworthy of fellowship. Can you see how looking at a book like this and understanding, imitate the good, avoid the evil, imitate the good, keep away from the evil, in a very practical, real life, here's two individuals or three individuals, we didn't really take a look at Demetrius during this time, but here they are, follow this one, avoid this one. How this can be a rich Bible study for all of us. Folks, every book of the Bible is like that. If we just know what to dig for and know how to read it. You can do this process uh, using the handout from last week. If any of you were not here, I'd be glad to email that to you or send it to you. I think they're also on the website. But you're able to do that, and you can go through the book of Leviticus doing the exact same thing. It may take you a little longer, but realize that you will have a deeper, more rich appreciation of what God said to us and how it applies to us. Thank you all so much for your attention this morning, and we will begin our worship here shortly. Thank you all so much for your attendance here today.